everybody, and welcome to That's Life, the show where we wonder how Mara Cohen became an international hit and whether Keanu Vanecha is right around the corner. Good afternoon, folks, and thanks for listening. I am Miriam L. Wallach, blogger, writer, and general manager here at the Nachum Siegel Network. You can find me here every Thursday at 2 p.m. as I hope to bring you a little entertainment, a little news, and a little relief that the life you are leading is not nearly as wacky as mine. Coming to you live from the home office of the Nachum Siegel Network on the beautiful Lower East Side. It's better than it was this morning. I'm joined by my handy-dandy partner, Avrami. What's up, Avrami? Not too much. Just, uh, you know, <laughs> doing a few shifts today. It's all right. <laughs> yeah, by the way, sorry for interrupting your live lunch before. It's okay. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that, but now you can get back at me. We'll keep your mic on for a couple minutes. I wish you and your whole family a good gavench. Do you are? Thank you very much. Gamlach. Gamlach. How Your fast was all right? Yeah, thank God. I fast pretty well, I have to say. Thank God. It's because you eat bread and water. So a fast is not that far from your whole bread and water menu. I loaded up before the fast. Don't <laughs> you worry. Carvo loaded? Yeah, chicken and pasta and oh the, I don't know what gosh. it was. I just I tend, you know, it's like it's the saying, why eat when you can overeat? So <laughs> it's, the, it's the Jewish way. That's what I do. Anyway, if you are a new listener to the show, thank you for taking a break from your day to tune in. And if you are a returning listener, thanks as always for making me part of your day. If Miriam L. Wallach once a week is just not enough for you. Do what Joan Ehrlich does. Visit me on my blog at DearThat'sLife.com. Friend me on Facebook or send me an invite on LinkedIn. You can also shoot me an email at Miriam at DearThat'sLife.com or Miriam at NachumSiegel.com. I will not respond to you during the show. I'm not being rude. I am just being honest, but I will make sure to get back to you afterwards. Let's go to our favorite segment. You know what that means, Avram. Yep, it's no the, Chinese food. That's it. No Chinese food, but I bring the fortune cookies. All right, one second. I got to keep the mess in the bag because, oh, all right, I already broke my own rule. No eating near the board. Okay, here we go. Think. Oh, my. Oh, my. Is this a post-Yom Kippur fortune cookie or what? All right. Think about your own mistakes rather than blame on others' faults. Ay vey. Rather than blame on others' faults. Ay vey. I could clap a couple extra alchids for that, that one. That doesn't even sound like English. It does Blame Hello? on others' faults? Do you want me to read it again? I'm just saying. Think it's... about your own mistakes rather than blame on others' faults. I'm just reading what it says. Right. I don't edit the fortune cookies, though my daughter just told me she'd be happy to make me my own fortune cookies and package them. I don't know how she does that, but on the other hand, I don't know how to use a Mac either. Anyway, let's take care of some business. It is National Hug a Vegetarian Day. That's what I'm here for. That's right. So if you need me, I have nothing else to do after 3. You can find me. I'll be walking down Grand Street on my way to the subway. If you need, hug a vegetarian. I'm around. It is also National Ask a Stupid Question Day. Hey, come <laughs> on. We can't have fun with that, everyone. <laughs> uh, so I may just break my rule about not checking my email because if you feel the need to email me a stupid question or post something on my Facebook page, gay is to hate. I will read it on the air as long as it is, well, it Wow, is you're so giving to the audience. I know, because it's National Hug of Vegetarian Day and because it's also, wait a minute, it's also National Good Neighbor Day. Oh. I know, there's so many good That's things post-Yom Kippur. That's good for after Yom Kippur, too, yeah. Exactly. There's so much post-Yom Kippur good vibe going on, um, but it's also National Save a Koala Day. I don't know. <laughs> I couldn't There's no That's segue. not antithetical to what we were talking about. <laughs> there's no segue here whatsoever. It's National Save a Koala Day, and frankly, I didn't realize that the koalas were in need of my saving. Did you know anything about koalas near extinction? No, I don't know much about them. Right. Somebody Sorry. want to shoot us a Facebook, you know, post or something about, uh, yeah. Listen to Yehuda. The koala. You out there? By the way, I haven't heard from Yehuda in a while. 
I don't know what's going on there. But anyway, we got plenty of other people who are listening. Yehuda, if you are listening, shoot us an email. Come on, we haven't heard from you. Anyway, um, tomorrow, by the way, just so you can prepare now, because you do have to make up for yesterday, of course. Tomorrow is National Coffee Day. And, of course, I do take that day very seriously. I will be visiting numerous different coffee establishments numerous times during the day. Um, I really hope somebody has some kind of a cool promo, because I'm looking for that. But even if you don't and you're not giving out free coffee, don't worry, I will pay for mine. Check out my blog. What was that noise? Someone outside, but not outside our door. Oh, that's unfortunate. Anyway, check out my blog. Funny things happen all the time. Crazy follows me everywhere. You can read about it tomorrow. But Avram, you'll like this one because what did I hear? Somebody uh, sent me a text, Arab Yom Kippur, and what did it say? Miriam, <laughs> they have finally named a hurricane after you. Evidently, Hurricane Miriam was scheduled <laughs> to hit Mexico in the next couple of days. So Erev Yom Kippur, I get this text. And all of a sudden, I'm so excited. I'm the only person on the planet who would be all that excited about having a hurricane. Ah, there is somebody at the door, Avram. Having a hurricane named after her and hearing about it, Erev Yom Kippur. Everyone else would take it as a pretty bad sign. Me, on the other hand, I think it's fun. It sounds great to me. So what happens? I start Googling it. I find out about it. And, um, yeah, I then start you know, getting very excited because as a person whose name is not used for anything, like if you go to Toys R Us or you go to Disney or you go anywhere where they make um, souvenir items that are personalized, the name Miriam is never used. It's just never used. Why? Because everyone butchers it all the time. So I'm not surprised. It's also, frankly, not the most common name. Sometimes telemarketers think I'm either Irish Catholic or I'm black every time they call and they, my name is Miriam. Anyway, neither here nor there. I start researching it. I'm all excited that there's a hurricane named Miriam. I speak to a friend of mine um, before Yontif, and I said, so what do you think about the fact that Erev Yom Kippur, they name a hurricane, Hurricane Miriam? And he says to me, I wouldn't read into it if I were you, and therefore we just dropped the subject. I brought it up with my husband. God bless him. I said, can you believe it? They named a hurricane after me. And he's like, and then some. Okay, thank you very much. We go on through Yom Kippur. I can't stop thinking about the hurricane. Anyway, I break my fast. Yontif is over. I break my fast, et cetera, et cetera. I check back online. I've been downgraded. I have been downgraded to a tropical storm. Can you believe it? Miriam was downgraded to a tropical storm. So, so much for Hurricane Miriam. Now, now we are at tropical storm Miriam and Avram. <laughs> and uh, now we are um, evidently looming in the Gulf of Mexico. And I'm not expected to hit landfall or do anything of uh, excitement whatsoever. So all these people who are preparing for Hurricane Miriam and now tropical storm Miriam need not fret because evidently... I'm just a bunch of hot air, and I'm supposed to die out at sea. Thank you, Avram. You like that punchline. I appreciate it. Is that why you called me back? (laughs) I I had to hear that part. (laughs) I knew you would like that. Right? Am I right? Yeah, exactly. That is, (laughs) it's Hug a Vegetarian Day, and it's Make Fun of Merriam on the Air Day. It's all great. It's all great. Anyway, you are listening to That's Life, live from the home office of the Nachum Siegel Network here on the lovely Lower East Side. I'm Miriam L. Wallach on the stream at NachumSiegel.com, and it is time to welcome my first guest, Seth Goldstein. I have a feeling I pulled you out of class, but I'm totally okay with that. You are a senior at Cooper Yeshiva High School in Memphis, Tennessee, and you are the first, I would have to say, senior at Cooper Yeshiva High School in Memphis, Tennessee, to be the lead story on AOL.com. Am I right? You are right. (laughs) (laughs) Who knew, right? Who knew that when you stopped to help a fellow runner who was really a competitor, but a fellow runner in this race, that all of a sudden your Good Samaritan Act that came completely naturally to you, Kol HaKavod, completely naturally to you, all of a sudden would land you off on the HuffPost and on AOL. 
Listen, let me tell you, this story and everything, it went from <laughs> zero to 60 in like <laughs> 0.3 seconds. Like, it happened, and then all of a sudden it started off. My rabbi spoke about it in Shul, and next thing I know, I'm the front page of AOL. <laughs> yeah, it's. It, by the way, I mean, and for good reason, for everything that we read about right now in terms of athletics and in terms of sports and even the NFL, which is a complete and utter mess, you know, it's nice to have. It's nice to have a good story. It's nice to have a feel-good story, and it definitely helps us. For example, that you are a nice Jewish boy, and uh, you did a big mitzvah, and you impressed the living daylights out of all these people who are standing around you. Because clearly, there are plenty of kids who and adults who would have run right by. They would have been thinking about the end of their race. They would have been thinking about their time. They wouldn't necessarily have stopped to consider. Uh, the the other person who had fallen down, but rather just continuing their own race. And you're you're right. I was you know during my interviews, I've had a couple of interviews, and one of so a person asked me, they go, "What was the scariest part of the entire thing?" And I told them, I said the scariest thing was you know there were five kids between me and Kyle, the boy that fell and started having a seizure, and those kids looked down and kept running. And I was wow. I was alone near that kid for a good amount of time. And kids behind me just kept running and just looked at me. And that was the scariest thing to me is that, you know, there are people that will just watch. They, they'll, they'll be, you know, they won't do anything about it. And it was really, it was terrifying. No, I, I, I can only imagine. You know, I, um, I have mentioned to students in the past when I was still teaching that when I talk about 9-11, I talk about people the firemen and the firefighters and the emergency workers, all who run towards the fire. And there are people like me who would see a fire and run in the opposite direction. There's that, <laughs> I'm certain, there's that, I'm being completely honest. If after, if the day after Yom Kippur I'm not being honest, I might as well pack my knives and go. But there is that, <laughs> the only thing I remember, Seth, from, from high school bio is that fight or flight reaction. And when you're, uh-huh. when your adrenaline gets going, you either are the person who runs or you to or runs from. And you are obviously the person who runs to. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so I want to know how other students in school have been reacting to all the, uh, the all the press you've been getting. You know, these kids—they've known me all my life, and they know me, you know, for being playful and fun. And when it's something serious like this, and I'm getting all this, you know, publicity, and everyone's calling me and texting me, and I'm being pulled out of class, so the dean can give me this email, and I can get, you know, listen to this voicemail. Everyone thinks it's hilarious. You know, I, everyone's rooting me on, and. They're like walking down the hallway. They'll be like, "Oh, is that the Seth Goldstein that I know?" And they'll be like, "Can I have your autograph?" And <laughs> so, I mean, it's it, they're all you know, 100% with me, and it's really cool. That's that that's great. How important to you? But what, by the way, how important was it for you to finish the race? I know that once an EMT came and uh, Kyle was in good hands, and they were shocked to know that you were um, that you were a, that you were a competitor in the race, and you weren't just an adult on the on the side who was there to help, how, how important was it to you to finish that race? You know, I guess it's a mindset that um, I've been working on to build. Um, I've been asked why I finished the race, and it took me some time. I had to think about it. I think I finished the race. You know, I came to the race. I owed it to myself and my teammates to finish the race. You know, I have – I'll tell you about the race before that one. Before okay. that race, we had a race. There's um, a kid in our cross-country team. He's – you know, 250 pounds, a heavyset kid, sweetest kid in the world. And, you know, he must have been last in the entire race. Our entire team had finished. The race was just about over. Um, and we saw him come in, and we got the whole team together, and we ran with him. And he, no matter what, he was walking a little bit, he was running a little bit, he finished the race. And, wow. you know, I, 
I, I learned from him. You know, that's an amazing mentality to have. Mentality to have is you just you, you can't stop. You can't give up once you have your mind set to something. So I guess I learned from him, and I just wanted to keep pushing forward and finish what I started. What do you? That's that's incredible. But what do you also think in terms of the lesson that other people are looking to you to learn? from your act in terms of sportsmanship and the way that we behave. I know, listen, as, as a person who has coached her own teams, I, I've told my students before, I've told you know the kids that I've coached, that your behavior is more important to me than coming home with any trophies. But to actually be in the heat of everything, I mean, it, it takes a really special person. So what do you hope that other kids are looking to you, to your act, and thinking? Um, you know, I hope kids aren't just looking at the scoreboard. Um I hope that whenever your opponent falls down in a basketball game, soccer game, whatever sport you're playing, you're the first one there to help them up because it's not what happens on the court. It's who you are as a person, and that's really what's going to affect you, you know, in your overall life, not the, you know, that one game where you're down by five, you're going to leave the kid and, you know, step on him while he's down. <laughs> so just to, to have good sportsmanship and that, you know, it's who you are on the inside that counts. That is, that's fantastic. I know you wrote to me. Um, in uh, when we were emailing a little bit back and forth, that you said you you know it's just it's classic a person of your you know kind of characteristic of your personality. You wrote, I'm a 17 year old and I go to the Cooper Yeshiva. I run cross country to get in shape for my basketball season, which by the way is crazy to begin with that you play one sport in order to uh, prepare for another one. We can talk about that kind of commitment another day. But you write uh, you write after high school I plan on joining the Israeli military. Yes, I do. Tell me, are you going to Israel for the year to study in yeshiva, and then you're enlisting, or what's the uh, what's the plan? Um, I haven't decided 100%. I know that um, I want to make Aliyah after high school. I want to be with my people. I want to, you know, live in Israel, and I also want to protect my people. I want to uh, join the Israeli military and do my, you know, service. I um that that's that's pretty incredible. How do your parents feel about that? Well, my father, he's. 62, and he still goes back for Miluim, and I have a brother in the military, so they're all, all for it. I have two brothers in the military. I was about to say, so basically it's just next? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> no, but it's something it's something that I've wanted to do you know, ever since I was little. I've always wanted to be an Israeli soldier. Well, I, I have to tell you, if this race and your acts on this race are any indicator of what you are going to bring to the Army when you get there, we are going to have a, a, a nation... Uh, a stronger nation protected by even stronger by even stronger military. So thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> all right. Well, I wish you all the best. I imagine you have to go back to class. I would like to thank, um, you know, Rabbi Gil Pearl for making this shidduch because I, it was what I had seen on his Facebook page that led me to you in the first place. And then uh, someone else had mentioned it to me, so I'm happy we were able to make this happen. And uh, you should continue to go from strength to strength. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. A pleasure, Seth. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. You are listening to That's Life on the Nachum Siegel stream. I am Miriam L. Wallach here on the Lower East Side, joined by my second guest. Though I have to tell you, Melissa, I don't know how you're going to follow that one. <laughs> I know. That's a tough act to follow. I know, for right? Sure. <laughs> it's pretty incredible. Anyway, Melissa Martin, she's the Director of Collections and Exhibitions at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Thank you for coming down. Thank you for having me, Miriam. Totally my pleasure, because I went to see the Havana Gila exhibit, which was, I have to tell you, was great. It was great, not be, not only because, I mean, uh, the fact is I, I, I couldn't imagine how you can get an entire exhibit out of one song, and I'm sure that, that when you brought up this idea, this concept for this exhibit, somebody said to you, shoot, really, an entire exhibit? You're going to do an entire installation out of one song? 
But not only did you do it, but I was fascinated by how much I learned in that room. Yeah, yeah. It, it was really a great opportunity for us. And like you said, so unexpected. Nothing, right. nothing we had in our plan. But maybe some of your listeners have seen circulating on the internet. There is a trailer for a documentary that's coming out this coming year by filmmaker Roberta Grossman and Katahdin Productions on the history of the song Havanagila. And it's called Havanagila. What is it? And this video has been seen by over 600,000 people. It just <laughs> keeps kind of spamming around and people kept saying, Sending it to us, and it turns out we know the filmmaker who made beautiful films for us on the history of Hannah Senish a couple years ago right. for an exhibit. And as you saw, we have this little tiny room in the museum, and we thought, wouldn't it be great to make something that would just work well for kids and connect these unexpected threads of history? And we had this fantastic design firm from Brooklyn called Situ Studio. That, it's fantastic. They did a stunning job. The whole room is outfitted to be a cross-pollinization between a sound booth or a dance dance floor or a party room or a bar mitzvah or a wedding, right. but it's very design forward, very colorful, very family friendly, but it will also, for people who are really interested in these chapters of history, bring these surprising connections forward. It is an excellent use of space, and as a person who has spent many years going through museums, as I am the daughter of a curator, it is. Um, it, it was incredibly impressive to see just how creative you could be with that finite amount of space and how much information you could really impart and how how um, incredibly you could use different medium within that room to really give part your message. And by the way, to our listeners, I will be posting, I took a bunch of pictures um, when I was there uh, the other day, and I definitely will be posting them so people can get an idea of what we're talking about. Hopefully I'll be able to do it while actually we're on the air, but I don't know that I'm that talented. Um, and actually, I'm not going to try because I know I'm not that talented. <laughs> um, but the truth of them, and for those of you who have never been to the Museum of Jewish Heritage, you really should go. It's in Battery Park. Um, it's open Sunday, Monday, Tuesdays, and Thursdays from 10 to 5.45, Wednesdays from 10 to 8 p.m. Um, and Arab Shabbos, it closes, let's see, um, it closes um, either 5 p.m. or 3 p.m., depending on when we change the clock, etc., it is easy to get to, and it is absolutely a beautiful space. It is really a stunning, stunning space. Um, but the, the, the thing I wanted to mention is that when you walk into the room, I mean, we should take people step by step. Yeah. First of all, one of your um, contributors, I don't, know if that, I don't even know if that's the right word, one of the sponsors, I should say, was Floor. Okay, F-L-O-R, which is a company that makes carpet tiles. And what you do is you connect the tiles, and you make your own rug, you make your own patterns, and I could not imagine before getting there what you were going to be doing with these tiles. But I think that it not only were, was it um, like unbelievably necessary, but it also used you also use them both creatively in terms of the colors and the effects, but also for the sound absorption. Right, right. And that's where the whole idea came from, is that we realized we had a realistic challenge on the ground. We wanted to tell the story through music itself. We didn't want it to be a book on the wall. We figured people, when they hear several different versions of Havana Gila stacked up over time, it's just jaw-dropping, because even though the song seems like some cliche from, from bar mitzvahs of the right. 70s and 80s, <laughs> there were all these versions going back to the 1920s, and we knew the Halutzim who went to uh, Israel 
and Palestine. Before then, it brought the song with them from Sadagora, now Ukraine. And that there were these old versions that sound like Nigunim, where there's chanting. And that if you just listen to that version of Havanagila, you realize that it's not the song we think of at all, but you still recognize the melody, even though it didn't even have words yet. We wanted then to take visitors into learning about the f- uh, formation of the lyrics mm. in the yeshuv right. uh, by uh, Abraham Z. Edelson, or possibly his student, Nathanson, right. and that the lyrics are really an expression of the Zionistic aspirations around the time of the Balfour Declaration, and that then the song travels in Zionist and Jewish educational circles abroad, becomes part of the, the Jewish children's learning circuit of what it means to believe in a Jewish homeland, that then in the post-war era, it becomes this anthem of partying and celebrating the American Jewish experience. What? Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. I, yeah, mean, no, yeah. I was just going to say that, you know, I think anthem is the right word. Yeah. Anthem is really the right word. I wonder, you know, taking a step back, I don't know when the inception was for this uh, for this exhibit in the first place, but at what point did you say to yourself, you know what, this is more than a song? Right, well, that that's why we call the exhibit Havanagila a song for the people. Right. Because it's always been for the people in some version or other, wh- whether that was for people leading an agricultural life on the kibbutzim in Palestine, whether that was people who, are, who march in parades as part of uh, an Israel Day parade or civil rights uh, protest. It was also used in the 1960s for civil rights. And so it's always been a song of and for the people. It, it has this democratic dance where anyone could join the circle at any time once it merged with the horror after the 1920s. It's also a song that anyone thinks they could sing, even though we probably don't know all the lyrics. (laughs) Not everybody knows all the lyrics. Forget it. I learned it that day when I went through the (laughs) exhibit. All of a sudden, I'm like, oh my gosh, there they are. That's what they're saying. Right, Right, Because after Havanagil, everyone just keeps going, Havanagil, right? Until you get to Uru Haim and then you're set. So it's it's a song that's always been this democratic song. And you know, we think it's it's been there, done that. But when Ali Raisman, you used it uh, in the Olympics people around the world Jews and others realize right. that this song still has great meaning and power for people whether it's through the recognition factor that people could sing and clap along they know what it is but that she was asserting her pride mm, she was a- she was and it also happened to coincide with the anniversary of the Munich Olympics right. and so she's bringing these meanings together even though that routine had been in the works for some time and the fact that she won the gold to the song rebrought it to public attention but one of the things we discussed Discovered is if you go on YouTube any day of the week, there's a new version of Havanagila or more posted every single day. You know, I saw that when I was walking through the exhibit, and I was completely stunned. I mean, there were a bunch of things in the exhibit that that really stunned me, and actually things that moved me when I was watching the Harry Belafonte piece. And I know that you know that's a very famous clip of Harry Belafonte singing Havanagila, but when he talked about being there in 1951, being in Germany in 1951. And singing Havanagila and looking at the crowd and seeing so many people moved to tears and so many people crying. And that's when he realized that this was probably the first time post-World War II, post the Holocaust, that people had heard that song there or people were given the opportunity to sing it there. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my, I was there. I actually went to the exhibit with my mom. And we both were very moved. We were we were totally taken aback because even though that's, that clip, that song, is something we all knew 
that backstory is something we didn't. Right, and that's that's what we as a museum do. Uh, for those who don't know the museum, the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust, has many, many rooms of exhibitions. It has a core exhibit that does hundreds of years of Jewish heritage and history before, during, and after the Holocaust. Then our third floor has four temporary galleries with constantly rotating exhibitions. And this is just one of ours where, where by opening it up, this very simple song that everyone thinks they know it's a portal into these other chapters of Jewish history that we don't always get to think about and tied to the popular experience. Right. No, another time you have to come back to talk about the Emma Lazarus um, exhibit, but I definitely want to just keep focusing on Havana Gila for today. The, um, the, so when we walk into the room, so when people understand, when you walk into the exhibit space, on either side are photographs. There are photographs of people being hoisted on chairs in the <laughs> middle of their Havana Gilas and different like bar mitzvah you know, snapshots, including one of Dr. Ruth Westheimer. That's right. That's right. <laughs> How did that happen? Well, she's a good friend of the museum and has had some of her celebration events there. Oh. And so I think it was at one of her birthday parties. She made sure that during Havana Gila that she got in the chair. That's hysterical. Yeah, yeah. So that was sort of planned. Well, uh, we, we happened to come across it in our archives. One of the neat things about the exhibit is that almost anyone in the whole world has experienced the song um, right. as either an insider, an outsider at your own event, whether you're a guest at an event. And so we invite the public to send in their own photos. We have uh, an account with our website. You could go to our website, to the Havana Gila page, and where there's a Pinterest upload feature and a Tumblr feature, or you could email it directly. So if you have a great photograph of you singing or dancing to Havana Gila, you'd send it in to us. And if that you you then sign an okay form that we can add it to the exhibit. That's fantastic. Yeah. Good for you guys. <laughs> That's really good. You know, I realized, by the way, this summer, I should say last summer, when um, I had the great opportunity of leading a birthright trip to Israel, something that my listeners know too much about because I talk about it all the time. One thing I realized while I was watching this, while I was going through the exhibit, was that when we went to the Kotel as a group, the the second Friday night we were in Israel, um, we all took the opportunity to sing and dance, etc. And the one song everyone knew was <laughs> was Hava Nagila. It didn't matter anybody's background. It didn't matter where anyone grew up. And it didn't matter what songs we had tried to teach over the first, you know, 10 days of the trip. But um, it was that song that brought us all together. And we were, and, and yeah, we sang it over and over and over again with the traditional hora, with the whole nine yards. And it transcends all of those boundaries. So when you say that Havana Gila is a song for the people, um, I really, I really appreciated that. And I wondered, by the way, if it's really a song for all people. Huh, that's an interesting question. I, I'm sure it's so familiar to us. Right. It seems like who doesn't know this song? Uh, but on the other hand, maybe it probably is elusive. One of the things we learned is these lyrics that everyone thinks they know, nobody knows. <laughs> right. Um, that the history that everyone assumes they know, but nobody knows. And then it, it speaks most closely to the Zionist experience and to that sentiment. Um, so I think it... Um, in its specificity, is going to, going to have more meaning and resonance in a particular time, place for particular people. But on the other hand, because of its universality, I think people pick up that familiar tune and readapt it for other purposes and messaging, um, whether that's for joyous purposes or otherwise, for humor, for self-parody, for civil rights. And so you could kind of pick up, you need to be familiar with a tune in order to repurpose it. I think that's one of the things hmm. that's been done. Interesting. That's very interesting. You're listening to That's Life on the Nahum Siegel stream. I am Miriam L. Wild, joined here by Melissa Martins, Director of Collections and Exhibitions 
at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Let me ask you something else. When you walk up, I shouldn't say that. Let me ask you. Let's bring people further yeah, into yeah. the room. So after you see the different photographs on either side, you then walk into the room, and there are almost these like metal umbrellas is probably the way I can explain them without the without the handle. Yeah. There are these huge metal domes that are, there are about five of them, am I right? Right, there's, there's about seven total. Oh, okay. So yeah. there's one big in the middle, and then there are different ones on alternate spaces that go around the room that allow you to, um, and through them or out of them comes the music that is then triggered by you standing under uh, standing underneath it, whether mm-hmm. a sensor, there's something on the floor, etc. And the music to be played at that moment, depending on what you're watch, what you're reading, yeah. what tiles are in front of you, um, are what play from that umbrella, from that umbrella, from that dome. And you, and it acts as a block to what's going on next to you in a different umbrella under a different dome. So that per, that sound is localized there, and your sound is localized with you. That is. That's pretty innovative. It is. It's so clever. And, uh, again, these designers at Situ Studio did a fabulous job because, as we were talking about, we had a realistic problem of we wanted to tell the story through sound, but we knew that you can't put people in a room and have sound bouncing all over the place or you won't be able to discern the distinctive content of each piece. And, like I said, the version that sounds like a Nigun sounds totally different from Harry Belafonte, sounds totally different from the Barry Sisters or Alan Sherman or Lena Horne. I was about to say, let's talk about Lena Horne in a minute, but go on. So so we had to isolate the sound enough, but still allow the room to be very animated. Right. These carpet tiles that were donated by Floor made the room look like an explosion of confetti, but also a sound booth, and it did absorb the sound. Right. We used laser etching techniques in order to engrave the imagery and the text into the carpet. Yeah, that was ridiculously cool, by the so way. So it's really groovy. Yeah. It is. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And again, the colors, and it's funny, when I took a step back to take a couple of pictures, I realized just how much not only do the domes work for sound, but also to reflect all the color. Exactly. It looks like a a carnival in there. It is. So the the sound umbrellas and sound sculptures both contain the sound. They are visitor activated. And then they reflect the colors like, like giant disco balls. Right. Yeah. The whole, the, the whole room is exciting. The whole room looks, um, inviting also. And I was, uh, and it's also deceptive. In terms of the finite amount of space, because it's it's a pretty small room in, right. ter- in terms of when you think of a normal exhibit and a, and a you know standard installation. But when you think about what's packed into that room, <laughs> it's really quite amazing. But let's talk about Lena Horne. Right. So one of the things that a lot of people don't know is that by the time Havana becomes an anthem of Jewish celebrations in the post-war period in the 1950s, it starts to be recorded by different artists, not only those who are Jewish. Mm-hmm. And by 1957, Harry Belafonte releases on his album An Evening with Belafonte, a version of Havana He was known for the songs of the Caribbean um, right mostly, and the Banana Boat song, Deo. (laughs) But uh, he performs the song at Carnegie Hall 1959, and the song explodes on the global jukebox. And everyone wants to take a crack at Hava Nagila. So there's a band in Sweden that does it. What made him do it, by the way? What made him do it? I think that he was taking on a a repertoire, like what we would call today world music. Okay. The the branching out and covering the songs of the world in that kind in that earthy spiritual way. And we're getting closer to the '60s and mm. pride and heritage and reconnecting to an ethnic past is coming up in the in the American vocabulary and popular culture. And 
so he's saying to have a Nagila, and people go nuts for it. It becomes and he gets that huh down really well, does, by the way. He does, he does. And it becomes his <laughs> second most uh, popular song ever requested for the rest of his career. Wow. And then after that, everyone starts recording Hava Nagila. But by the 1960s, it is so familiar that you can't just sing it the same way. If you're going to bother to record Hava Nagila, you got something to say for Hava Nagila. So Lena Horn was going to be at a fundraiser for civil rights, and the Jewish songwriters Comden and Green and Julie Stein take civil rights lyrics, but it's interesting because they're all Jewish. And of course, they're going to know from the message of equality. So this is where a Jewish sensibility matches up with civil rights. And they help write these lyrics for her. She sings it. It becomes the standard now, which uses all civil rights lyrics to the tune of Hava Nagila. The whole thing is 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 incredible. The ima- the number of things that stem from Havanagila. Did you ever imagine you would know this much about Havanagila in your life? No, I could not imagine. <laughs> I didn't think there was that much to know. Right. And then, <laughs> by the way, and also the the um, origination of the song, the person who is credited, that is also murky. That's right. Right. No one will ever really know. I think because many people have tried to get to the bottom of it. A famous Jewish musicologist, Avraham Z. Edelson, was living in the Yeshiv in Palestine between the the wars, and he uh, was teaching music, and he was also collecting the different Hebrew melodies. He wanted to document the the Jewish experience through these melodies, and he was uh, transcribing them, and he found the tune, and uh, he believes that he got it from uh, Sadagora Hasidim, who was living there, and he transcribes it. And then, around the time of the Balfour Declaration, he was looking for a tune to put Zionist lyrics. He claims that he wrote the lyrics, but one of his students, uh, Moshe Nathanson, claims that he wrote it. And we know the who knew each other and both became very prominent in the music field for the rest of their lives. So it's quite possible either one of them could have. And the, the lyrics take off and then become lyrics for the people. The whole thing is just, I mean, again, it, it's really amazing how a song that is not, um, that to me, it's not a song, it's not a national anthem in terms of the fact that it, it's not, right. it's not the Hatikva and it's not the, you know, the American national anthem. It's, it, it's, it's a, it's an anthem for um, for a group of people who were homeless, mm-hmm. and but still this song traveled with us no matter where we were. And the 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 footage you can find footage all over the internet and all over archives of people dancing at the hotel, etc. Uh, uh, people dancing all over the world and having Havana Gila ringing in the background. It's really it, it's 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 quite amazing to think that such a simple song with such simple lyrics, though no one has ever gotten the lyrics right until you go see the exhibit, <laughs> um, um, is a song that has also been carried with us no matter where we went. That's right. And even though today I know that a lot of people are tired of the song because they've heard it a million times and it does seem like a cliche. It's a classic. But, it's not a cliche. But in order to <laughs> even have that possibility means that you're in a secure possibility, in a secure situation. Yeah. And that's a wonderful thing too. But as, as people travel and as we think about issues of justice or inequality, the song then takes on new meaning. I also didn't appreciate until I went to the exhibit how certain comics, how certain comedians had integrated the song also into their repertoire. That's right. Starting in the 1960s at this time, this is right after the Harry Belafonte recording, so it's it's at its peak of popularity. But at the same time, it doesn't take long for people to start to make fun of themselves. And as I was saying, it takes being comfortable in America in order to do that publicly. And so Alan Sherman is one of the first parodists to do this, also those... Uh, absolutely not the last. And he takes the words 
Hava Nagila and does his rendition Harvey and Sheila, right. making fun of the <laughs> suburban Jewish experience and, and that the experience had turned had turned the corner several times and become very comical. And uh, that becomes a well-known hit of his. So I think by the 60s, people were ready to see it as sincere or in a postmodern way. Actually, when we were going through the exhibit, my mom, when we heard the Alan Sherman playing, my mother said, your grandmother used to play this album over and over and over again, and she knew all the words. It was like over, you know, it was completely like a flashback for her. And then as he got to the other end of the exhibit, when you saw this, these modern day takes on Hub and Aguila, it almost looked like Hub and Aguila flash mobs is the only way I could describe it. And then to read that there are all these postings of cons on YouTube of, you know, different versions of modern day versions of Hub and Aguila on a daily basis. Really blew me away. It's not. It's it's not old. Yeah. No. It's amazing. We we were constantly surprised. We really thought we were looking at a song of the past more than one of the present. But by the time we got to YouTube and Ali Raisman won the gold, right. we realized that every, every few days we would just do a search for Havanagila on YouTube, and we saw it's being used in in flash mobs down in Argentina. It was being used by Occupy uh, this past year. It was being used for sincere celebrations, of course. It was being used for a Jewish salon in Tehran where they can celebrate their Jewishness really? in a very small venue. Oh, it was no. being used in Russia as part of a campaign where people could then identify more publicly as part of the Jewish community. So wow. in in these areas where Jewish identity is maybe not as taken for granted as we've cu- become used to, that's where Havana Gila has even more potential. We only have a couple minutes left, and I know that the exhibit opened on September 13th. It continues through when? It continues through summer. That's great. So tell me, after Ali Reisman won the gold and she used Havana Gila for her floor exercise. Did you try and get her to the opening? <laughs> I th- I that would have been my first gut reaction. We sent her an invitation, but I have a feeling she's a little busy. No, that's unfortunate. But I have a feeling if, you know, if this exhibit travels, I don't know if it's planning to We travel. hope it will. Oh, that's great. I hope you'll include an eighth uh, umbrella, so to speak, an eighth dome that includes a clip of Allie Reisman doing her uh, doing her floor exercises. Yeah, she does appear briefly in our introductory video because right. we had to put her there, but we'd love to include her more. Well, that sounds great. Anyway, Melissa Martins, Director of Collections and Exhibitions at the Museum of Jewish Heritage, thank you very much for joining me. It's really it's a fascinating exhibit. I hope everyone will make their way down to Battery Park and check it out. Thank you, Miriam. Totally a pleasure. You are listening to That's Life on the Nahum Siegel stream. I am Miriam L. Wallach, joined by my third guest because it is a packed show today. You would think that right after Yom Kippur it might be a little bit slow, but hey, that's not the way we do things here. Shiver, yeah, you want to? You can stay at that. You can stay at that mic if you're comfortable. Yeah, just put those on. Anyway, Shiver Klein, I love when you come back. Shiver Klein is the editor of Batea Bone Magazine. I love when she comes down. And by the way, thank. I was nice to meet your husband at the lunch. Oh yeah, it was very exciting. <laughs> you know, because right now he's just an email. That's right. It was very early in the morning. But... It was. Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, J and the AM, we started six. Uh, yeah, that was an early morning. Anyway, but Mazel Tov on the on the magazine. Thank you so much. So explain to everyone who did not listen for some ungodly reason to that <laughs> launch. Um, tell me about the collaboration between Joy of Kosher and Batea Um So basically, Batea and Joy of Kosher are the two leading kosher cooking magazines, the only independent kosher cooking magazines on the market. And um, as Jamie was moving, Jamie Geller was running Joy of Kosher, and she was moving to Israel, you know, they were looking for someone in the States to run the magazine day-to-day operations. And so we decided to merge our assets. Why, you know, it's a, it's a specific market, the kosher consumer. Why work? Why have two different magazines? So we uh, met and uh, it really worked out really well. 
uh, we're joining together. We actually joined together, and um, it's been very exciting, and the feedback's been very positive so far. That's great. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you had to compromise in uh, in giving up some of your uh, giving up some of your brand? No, there's you- no there's no compromising. You'll see, especially in the upcoming issues, the direction that we're taking. I'm very excited about the upcoming issue that we're working on, the Hanukkah winter issue. Mm-hmm. And um, just in general, there's really no compromise. We're all working together. That's great. And the only thing is, you know, in the future, the magazine will be called Joy of Kosher, not Batavon. And will continue to say Batavon presents at the top? No. Okay. But that's it, because when you're building a brand together, exactly. that's no longer going to be necessary. Exactly. You know, the name Joy of Kosher speaks to more people, and right. it also goes along with the website, joyofkosher.com, so, and we're working along with them as well. So how hard is it to work with somebody who's six hours ahead? It's fine because we're always up. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> I do know that. <laughs> I do personally so it's know never that. Never a problem. So what in the um, so the the magazine by the way this issue um, is the fall issue. It dealt with a lot of Rosh Hashanah. Yeah, it was a, and and sukkahs. I was about to say, yeah. but there's plenty of sukkahs in here. That's right. So what are you making for sukkahs out of the magazine? Oh, so many things. And by the way, I want the, you to know on page 12, not to interrupt you, but on, no, page, on yeah. page 12, yeah, you're the only person who lets me interrupt them. <laughs> um, my husband's shaking his head going, don't let her do it. Um, from Breezy's yeah. in Cedarhurst on Central Avenue, yeah. the containers, which are featured in number five, I got as a gift. Oh, wow. They're fantastic. Yeah. She, yeah. It's very practical stuff in there. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Definitely. It's a, and it's a great store. I wish them, um, I wish them all the best. So tell yeah, me what you're making really- for Sukkot. So many things. We had the infused honey, which was amazing. Yeah. T- I would really recommend that. Okay. It's so- also a great, like, if you're going to somebody, make make them a jar of infused honey. Yeah. Explain to everyone what that means. Infused so honey, it's so easy, but it really takes What page is honey, that on? Um, i got to go to that page so I can... I can infused uh, honey, page 16. All right. I'm going. I'm going. Oh, shoot. Okay. <laughs> so basically, we infused... You just, like, heat up the honey on very low heat. Right. And add different flavor. We did rosemary, which is more savory. Right. Vanilla. I had vanilla so bean honey cool. for uh, apple dipped in honey. You did? Yeah, it was great. You know what we use? We use something called creamed honey, which is I, I don't I don't know how they make it, and I'm not asking. Okay. It's totally parav. <laughs> it's like a don't ask, don't tell thing. Okay. Um, and it's completely parav. And I bought the um, organic one, but it is like it's like a spread. It doesn't drip. Doesn't oh, drip okay, anywhere. It has got everywhere. But yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. It is literally like a spread. I can't figure out. My friend Judy got it for me once. And um, I, I don't know how they make it, but it's but it's amazing. But I didn't try doing these things, but we, you know, we use honey through sukkah, so it doesn't matter yeah. if I can start now. So, so you fun. did the vanilla bean honey. Yeah. And you can use it, like, if you're doing a dessert or a salad dressing or different things, the infused honeys are a great addition. Did you leave the rosemary sprigs in for a while, or you took them out yeah, after a while? Yeah, it lets the flavor get in there. It, it continues to yeah, infuse yeah. it. That's great. I can actually imagine the rosemary honey on top of... A goat cheese crostini. Oh wow! Right, this is good. We yeah. should have a meeting about recipes. Can there. I tell you? I really. <laughs> I'm happy to come collaborate. And by the way, I have to tell you, our next issue, our next issue, we're starting to. It reminded me of you because you don't eat meat. So we're doing, we're having some vegetarian dinners in there. Do you know what's Hug a Vegetarian Day? What? Oh, no, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, we're gonna oh, hug we'll after. Have to hug after. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've always like good. <laughs> and we're also um, we're also adding nutrition info for every recipe. Oh. So we're going to be doing that. Good for you. Yeah. So, all right. So let's take those two steps and let's talk about them, even though, please God, I'll have you on in a couple of months. Oh, okay, because I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah, but, no, no, but, I lo- but I'm very, but uh, this is con- in the event that this sounds condescending, it shouldn't be. <laughs> but I'm actually very proud of you that you're putting on the nutritional analysis. Okay. Because the truth of the matter is, is that we all have to be informed eaters. 100%. And we're feeding our kids whatever we're putting in our own mouths. And we all need a wake-up call. Exactly. I know I know that Mayor Bloomberg, everybody thinks Mayor Bloomberg has lost it a little bit. But I'm all for it with the getting rid of the big oh, golf. I disagree with him, though. But we won't really? get into that. 
Really? Tell me yeah, why. I don't think it's his job to tell everyone. I don't think it's going to help people anyway. Mm. What about uh, what I... will do buy one, get one free. <laughs> <laughs> You're a good Jewish woman yeah. you are. <laughs> buy in bulk. Okay. <laughs> All right. That's so what other topic. Okay, okay, exactly. So let's go back to the infused honeys. And what else are you making over Sukkot? So um, the bento boxes were a big that, hit. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. And I have to say that I tasted everything in here because of the photo shoot. Ah. And like it says on the cover, we had a picture of every recipe. Right. So I love I really, when you do that. Yeah, it's great, and it really helps you see what's going on. So we'll do the challah, the bread pudding, because I'm gonna ha- I have a, a lot of leftover challah to use. Can we talk about Chocolate that, by the way? Yeah, uh, so by good. the way, I mean, game, yeah, set, match. So as soon as I saw that, and <laughs> I, I'm probably one of those people, I am one of those people who starts magazines from the back to the beginning. Oh, yeah. Do you know people like that? That's me, yeah. Yeah, you have that. to. Well, the, the fun is at the back. The fun yeah. is not at the beginning. The beginning is the serious part. The fun <laughs> is in the back. Right, so the chocolate bread pudding is on page 66. And by the way, I love, it's very it's very classy to put the chocolate health tip right next to, right next <laughs> the, to the bread pudding. Right, chocolate bread pudding. Fruit, <laughs> so I'm looking at this and I'm saying, okay, five cups of soy milk, four eggs, etc., etc. But don't worry, it's healthy. <laughs> I'm like, this is a woman after my own heart. Tell me chocolate is healthy if it's a vegetable and we're great. So what did you, so how did this come about? Who came up with this one? So this is actually my article. Oh. Um, but so this was a practical issue. What? This was practical. What do you mean? Practical? You had all your bread. You had to get rid of all your challah. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, this recipe is very exciting. And we use um, instant chocolate pudding to just add richness. Mm-hmm. So it's really easy, quick, but like really good recipe. And what about, um, did you try it with whole wheat challah by any chance? I did not. But it depends which holy challah you use. It can't be bitter, but I don't see why, why it wouldn't work otherwise. No, I, I, I don't disagree. You know what I... You know what I've been doing? I've been, I'm going to whisper so my kids don't hear. <laughs> Shh, but don't worry. My kids have told me numerous times they don't listen to me anyway, oh, literally okay. and figuratively. <laughs> but um, I have been using, I've been supplementing white whole wheat challah in my chocolate chip cookies. White whole wheat challah. In- Sorry, white whole, me- white oh, whole, whole wheat, wheat flour. flour in my chocolate chip cookies. But 100% that flour? Um, I've been playing around with it and it's a little bit bitter, no? It's, um, it's, I don't do it a perfect, I don't do it oh, a perfect okay. swap. I'll do it about two-thirds and a third, Um, but it works. That's a health tip, by the way. Exactly. (laughs) That makes them healthy. It's like when I make peanut butter cookies and I tell people, don't worry, they're high in protein. Exactly. (laughs) It's all about the marketing. Exactly. Okay, so you made this one, and what else is in here in terms of the chocolate? Because it's really about the chocolate. Yeah, the chocolate-dipped fruits. So that is healthy. Right. Oh, yes. Why? Bittersweet chocolate. It's very healthy. Melted with fruits. There's nothing wrong. It's a healthy dessert. It's a wonderful thing. I'm totally into it. Now, just explain to me. I, I I didn't make this because it made me a little bit nervous, but the chocolate carrot cake? Really? Oh, yeah. It's very good. What made and you what try was, that? Because I was doing a chocolate article, and I was brainstorming and saying to myself, it's time for, the re- it's around Rosh Hashanah. It right. perfect to incorporate the classic carrot cake. Everyone eats carrots around that time. And, um, and why not try it with chocolate? And then my husband and I had this brainstorm to do uh, carrot juice, um, a carrot juice topping, which... Right, the glaze. The glaze right. is... Has no coloring. It's just carrot juice. And it so actually tastes smart. amazing. It was, by the way, yeah, I yeah, read that and I'm like, okay, that's, that's a good one. Right. That, and by the way, I love, as a person who doesn't love coconut, I like coconut in things. Yeah, how coconut this, in this cake works great. I don't know why that is. Like, I don't like pina coladas. That whole thing makes no sense to me whatsoever. Um, but coconut flakes in numerous different, um, in numerous yeah. different uh, uh, recipes really works 
Beautifully. All right. So I, I will I will dig deep. I will try the chocolate carrot cake simply because I trust you completely. <laughs> um, but tell me what else we're making for uh, what else we're making for Sukkot. So uh, the brisket with full fruits was really good. That, oh, that. that's on page yeah. 59. Sorry, it has that traditional brisket flavor. It's a little bit Moroccan with the dried fruits. Right. Uh, we really enjoyed that. And what about the gefilte fish ring? You know what? It was really good. Was it easy? It was easy. I ju- you just have to process everything in the food processor. Will they do it for me at the? Will, will my fish guy do it for me, or I don't have to do that? No, you get the you get the fillet with the skin off. Okay. Of the different fish that is in the recipe. Okay. And then you just put it in the food processor and blend it together with the carrot and there's a there's an onion, a little bit of sugar. I think there's matzo meal. I don't right. know the recipe by heart, but. So you just do that and then stick it in the bun pan. And it's a very, it's a more, um, the bun I pan like it. I feel like it's an improved version over the store-bought gefilte fish. Oh, and you do it, yeah. in, a, you do it in, a, in a water bath. In a water bath, yeah. Why does that work, by the way? What does it do? I don't the water know, I, bath helps cook evenly. From underneath? I think so. I think people do it with creme brulees or right. pasta cream. So, like, it shouldn't cook, like, curdle on top and then, like, you know, be raw in the middle. Oh, so yeah. that's why that works. Okay, and then how do you unmold it? Because it looks really pretty in the picture, but I know me, half of it would fall out at the time. Well, you have is to there let a trick? it. You have to let it. Um, you have to let, let, it let it cool, cool. completely. That's in fact, what it the is. picture uh, we took it out of the oven a little too early. Oh, really? So is so that why the there's picture, only half the picture? Yeah, that's why. <laughs> and it's decorated with carrots. Do you see? Yes, I do. <laughs> but. <It's> because- <laughs> No, but it was back really story. good. Yeah, yeah, backstory. Yeah, no. By the way, that's the most. That's the best thing about icing. Icing, yeah, create, icing, yeah. Oh, icing is amazing. a genius. First of all, it's glue. Icing works as glue. When your cake is falling apart, just ice it. Really it really does. Yeah. It's but an, you do have to get the technique. Yeah. Well, because, I like, think you don't want to glop it on. No, and also I think people need to understand there's something called a crumb coat. And the crumb coat is yeah. there for a reason. A crumb <laughs> coat is a very thin layer of icing that you put on initially. That's not the pretty part. Then you glop on the icing on top. Exactly. But the crumb coat just literally holds all the crumbs together. That's yeah. a lot of fun. And by the way... We didn't get into the um, the Vietnam. We didn't get into the Vietnamese oh, article. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a second because that was it's interesting. So interesting. It's so interesting. I mean, kosher around the world is fascinating, and it's fascinating how everyone finds a way. Yeah, this is a really good. This is a really good segment, or I should say, um, the word's not segment when you're talking about magazines. This is a feature. A feature. That's it. Yeah. This is a really good feature in the magazine. I like the different places that you guys have visited, and I'm yeah. sure you would actually like to visit them. I would love to. You really one want to go to Vietnam? Bu- one day our budget will allow us to do photo shoots <laughs> in France and England. It's going to be fun. Yeah, but that's not Vietnam. I know Vietnam. Actually, my brother was visiting there, so Are he you was serious? our. He was our. He was working. He was working with. Um, Did he get lost? What? No, he didn't get lost. No, I'm saying, what was he doing there? He was working with the shluchen there. Ah. And um, he was our contact. Interesting. Fascinating. He said the fr- like he was talking about the produce there. It was, he said it's amazing. He That's... said it's like nothing you ever tasted. Really? Yeah. So, the, uh, so did he? So was he your taste tester? What was he your taste tester? taste tester for the tropical fruits of Vietnam? <laughs> That's not bad. Not bad. I wouldn't mind that. I wouldn't mind that. And uh... then on Rosh Hashanah, when we were eating all the new fruits, he's like, "This is not what it tastes like." Oh. <laughs> By the way, do you do the simanim at home? What? Do you it's do some. A, I'm, 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 I, I sort of feel like I need to take. I need to take a poll. So which ones do you do? I'm not trying to get, you know. This is like a quiz. No, no, only because oh, we no. do all of them. Oh, I have the fish head. Right. The carrots. Um, you know, the pomegranates, the new fruits. Why? What do you do? We do, and you name it. We do it. The I mean, animals do. They have like. It's like a go- seder. Like a, uh, what do you, what is it? The goat's head or the. Oh, right. Which? Right. There's a, there's a fish head on my no, table. Fish head. Right. There's a, what? Sheep. The oh, sheep's sheep. head. Yeah. They do it. No. 
no, no, no. My I father don't... owns a shaykhan and he comes oh. like, it's like hectic. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone can't see him from his face, but I can. Um, yeah, that's not happening at my house. But we do the white beans. We do the gourds. We do the dates. Oh, wow. You name it. We, we really it's, it's, it. it's fun. It is a lot it makes of fun. It interesting. And then you don't have to cook a main meal because everyone's full. After I know. Two I know. <laughs> Stupid. I'm, mom. I'm not. <laughs> Mama didn't raise no fool. Um, okay. Let's also, by the way, go to I'm watching the clock. I know. I know. I know. We really have to be on time because otherwise we cut into Randy and I don't want to do that. But I do want to get through a couple of the salads okay. because the autumn salads that are all right. We're wrapping it up. Avrami. Shoot. He's tough. Okay. Um, the apple, fennel, and roasted beets. Do you know what I found at Fairway this week? What? I found uh, packaged cooked beets with an OKP on it. Oh, wow. For real life. Oh, wow. But yeah. Beets are very easy to cook. They are. But you know what they are? They're also time consuming. Why? You just wrap them in silver foil and roast it. I, I don't know. But then there's the peeling. Then there's the peeling. Then, then there's the, peel- the gloves. Exactly. The peeling, yeah. the gloves, the staining of whatever you're using. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This way, I'm opening it up over a disposable tin. That is I'm good. getting rid of it and calling it a day. Well, it's a good shout-out for Fairway. By the way, <laughs> you and I are going to do – they don't know this yet, but you and I are going to do a show from the Fairway in Westbury that has a huge kosher section. Oh, wow. I didn't has know Has a glot section. Has – you name it. It is mm-hmm. – they are really catering or trying to attract the, uh, kosher. The, 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 kosher, the kosher consumer on Long Island. And if I get any props from this show, I'm telling you right now it worked because I'm going back. And it's okay, not yeah. around the corner for me. I do have a number of kosher supermarkets that are around the corner for me. I'm going back to, to Fairway. It was it was really out of this world. Right. Okay. All right. So give us yeah, one okay. last recipe before Avrami starts throwing darts at me. One last recipe. It's very hard to choose. But I know. for Sukkis, we have a step-by-step of stuffed cabbage. Oh, right. It was very popular. I mean, I really got phone calls and letters from people. Good for you. Because it's so traditional. And right. people were so proud that they were able to make it. And they said, I wish my grandmother or my mother would see this. Page 38. Yeah, it was very inspiring. And we have two different sauces for people to choose from. You know we how many have, people like, are afraid of stuffed cabbage? Yeah, it's really not scary. It's no. time-consuming, though. I'm not going to lie. That is that is. But that um, is yeah, it's a great true. chance also to subscribe. We're doing a special, 19.99 for six issues. Oh, that's great! Um, and you could just subscribe on joyofkosher.com. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I wish you continued Hatzlacha. Thank you so much. I can't wait to have you on for the December issue. Yes, especially it's be so with exciting. the shout out to the vegetarians. Yes, and the <laughs> nutrition info. And the yeah. nutrition info. And a lot of other exciting things. Yes. You know what? I, I, the one thing I've never found out is the nutritional info for the challah I make. <laughs> and um, I don't want to know. Oh, okay. We'll keep it a secret. But yeah. I was going to say, you could email to me. Maybe I could ask the... Oh, really? Yeah, I could, I could find out. Oh, my you. gosh. I don't know if I want to know. <laughs> Let's anyway, just leave it. I was about to say, let's leave well enough alone. Anyway, Shifra Klein, thank you so much thank for joining for me. me. Absolutely a pleasure. I wish you a Chag Sameach. Thank you. My pleasure. You are listening to That's Life on the Nachum Siegel stream. I am Miriam L. Wallach. Thank you for joining me today on Thursday. Thank you for making us part of your day. Let's go through the lineup so you know what not to miss. We have a full afternoon of programming right after me. It's something to talk about with Randy Wartelski, where Randy tackles different topics every week. Then at 5 o'clock, the OU presents the Jewish Reaction with Rabbi Yaakov Glasser. Immediately after that, it's the Stunt Show, hosted this week by Shim Kramer. And you know what we say about the Stunt Show. You never know what you're going to get. The Thursday Night Extravaganza is on from 7 to 9, followed by an all-new present presentation of the Book of Life with Charlie Harari. Charlie's show was trumped this week by Erev Yom Kippur. Last week was by Rosh Hashanah. This, year, this week by Erev Yom Kippur. His fourth episode will be live tonight during his usual encore slot. And, folks, he's taking phone calls. So definitely make sure to listen live at 9 o'clock tonight. You can call in and speak to Charlie directly. And the day, of course, closes with an hour of Jewish soul from Charlie Bernhardt. Join Nachum tomorrow morning from 6 to 9 a.m., as he hosts Jamie in the AM 
live here on the stream at MalcolmSiegel.com and jamintheam.org. You can hear in the background <laughs> my shout-out to my husband, um, which is the song that we are closing with today. JM Sunday with Matis Winegas is in full swing. Make sure to catch it on Sunday from 7 to 9 only on the stream. This show will be rebroadcast Sunday at 9 a.m. Sunday at 1 p.m. I'm sorry, on MalcolmSiegel.com. My thanks to Avrami. My thanks to Melissa Martins from the Museum of Jewish Heritage, to Shipper Klein from Batay and Bone Magazine, and to Seth Goldstein. Check out his story. Anyway, I leave you today with Avram Fried and Lipa singing Marek Kohen. That's life, everybody. Hey, go, go, go.